Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation and the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report as a podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe at your go-to podcast platform. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Jason Lee, journalist with the Deseret News and co-host of Voices of Reason podcast. Emily Means, political reporter with KUER and Spencer Stokes, president of Stokes Strategies. Thank you all for being with us. This has been a big week in politics, but I want to get into what happened just last night. I'll start with you, Spencer. Uh, we had the presidential debate, the third, the final, ten, ended up being just the second, but the, the third presidential debate. Uh, how did you feel that this debate went uh, compared to the, ones, the one we had initially? Well, I was grateful for, for an on and off switch on microphones. That at least gave the, the uninterrupted two minutes, and I think they were pretty... Uh, good about that. I en really enjoyed the split screen. I wish that we could have just, uh, I would have just turned the sound off uh, and watched their facial expressions, but I don't think anybody was damaged or hurt or changed anybody's minds. I was interested in Joe Biden's use of the word gymnasium, which I haven't heard in probably 20, 25 years since I was in <laughs> high school, uh, because not anybody, no one ever says, I'm going to run down to the gymnasium to work out. But, uh, uh, but I, I think where people are there, they were there. I think the first debate, I'd love to know the viewer numbers. I think the first debate probably turned a lot of people off in watching the second one. I had a lot of people tell me, hey, I'm just going to watch to see how the on-off switch works. Yeah. Uh, so I think it was kind of a snooze fest as far as that goes. Yeah, so Emily, a lot of people were looking at this debate, hoping that they would get to the issues. First one, I think most people would say that was just sort of disaster if you were looking for the policy positions right. of these candidates. Did people watching this debate, particularly the people you're talking to in Utah, feel like they understand at least the policies and positions of these candidates after this debate? Um, you know, I think that the moderator, first of all, did a really good job of trying to get to the heart of these issues with the candidates. Uh, I didn't watch the first debate, but um, I know that Chris Wallace had a really hard time kind of wrangling both President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. But, you know, I think that if people were tuning into it, they they, they didn't change their mind, right? So even if they're hearing about Joe Biden's um, proposals for health care or the way Trump is going to handle the coronavirus pandemic going forward, um, I don't know if they learned anything new, um, but they've, they've already made up their minds. And that's what I heard from voters when, um, when the vice presidential debate happened as well, that uh, most people had already decided how they're going to vote. They just want to kind of see what the other candidate is like. So I do think there was a little bit more room to um, have that back and forth between the two candidates, but I don't really know if people people learned much more about yeah. policies than they thought they would. Let's talk about a couple of those, Jason. I'm sure on your podcast, which I always love listening to, you would love to have a mute button from time to time. Uh, but <laughs> uh, any, any points of distinction that you saw in this debate uh, that are particularly relevant in the minds of Utahns? Not really. I, th I think as Emily and Spencer both said, you know, it's, it's very difficult to watch this kind of event and think that people haven't already, particularly if they're really into the, uh, the uh, political, uh, this is a presidential election, they've already pretty much made up their minds. 
the one thing I do think that is always should have been going on and should be done with every uh, debate, by the way, is to have the on and off switch so that you can control how the candidates interact. Uh, when the thing I hated about uh, in 2016 that Donald Trump was able to do was interrupt constantly to walk around to essentially uh, be an annoyance to his uh, running uh, opponent and basically derail any possibility of talking about substantive issues and policy. In this case, at least, you now got to hear them each individually say what they had to say. If you're the president, you're probably going to stay away from some of the policy issues because you don't want to get too much into that because at some point uh, the coronavirus is going to come up and then you'd have to discuss that at length. And I don't know that that's something he wanted to do, particularly as we get closer and closer to this election. And if you're Joe Biden, it, you've told, you've already given your message over and over again, and it, especially here in Utah, it's very difficult to imagine that he was going to say something that was going to have any voter who is watching, particularly if they're conservative, to change their minds and decide to vote for him. Mm -hmm. So, Spencer, there was one item that I saw that I'm curious about when it came to the item of, of oil and extraction. That was something that, that we've seen in Joe Biden uh, in some of the print materials, his energy portfolio, what he wants to do. But the fact that he went out and explicitly talked about phasing out that oil, that has an impact in some states. Well, well, you know, this this really comes down to, uh, and, you know, my, my brain says that Joe Biden is going to win, but my gut and instinct says that Donald Trump's going to win. Uh, and it comes down to a few key states, and some of those key states Pennsylvania, there are a lot of places that are impacted by the production of, of oil. And so that was a massive, uh, in my opinion, if you were to pick one issue that really somebody went on the record saying, I'm going to end oil production, that was a massive uh, statement to make at a, at a debate. I did miss the animatronic fly of the last, uh, <laughs> of the University of Utah debate, which really caught the attention of the world. Uh, but, but that was probably the only, the only item that I think was kind of a newsbreaker. Uh, or a change, not a change, but a, a definition of the stance. Yeah, there's certainly some of those those hot states right now that could go either way that, that Biden would need. They're hoping to pay attention to that response. Well, I mean, it comes down to three. It comes down to Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, and Florida really are the big, big prizes. I know that a lot of people have Texas, uh, you know, leans Trump. Uh, they have Utah leans Trump. The, the, look, Utah's not going to lean Trump. Utah's a Trump state. I mean, you know, so those calculations of Texas leaning Trump, Trump will win Texas. Well, I'm just wondering if you all think there's any merit to these debates at this point, or is it really just for the purposes of sound bites, you know, we we see the clips on on Twitter and and social media the day after. Um, do you think that voters are actually getting anything out of this, or is the sole purpose of the debate to to have a, a fun soundbite? I think bite? the day the reality television star entered the the race for the president, all all uh, norms of debates have changed since 2016, and and. It's, it's actually sad uh, because, you know, we had such decorum in years past with debates where people were actually talking about the issues. They didn't talk over people. And if you were to ask me, what's one, one thing that you feel like has changed during a Trump presidency, decorum would be one of those things. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about one of these yeah, other norms, which is in, Okay, Jason. Just what you mentioned, I mean, the idea is, um, it's pretty un, uh, unlikely that people would change their minds. However, you know, at least in, in debates before, policy was 
the major thing being talked about, you know, question after question after question, what has happened, at least uh, in these last debates in this particular presidential election, there's very, been very little discussion of that. And so I think, honestly, we, the public, the voting public, have lost in that because we didn't get a chance to hear as much about the policy issues, issues that uh, are concerning to us from our candidates. And so we don't know probably as much as we would like to know about their actual plans to enact any policy they have. Mm -hmm. Uh, President Trump, uh, let's talk about how he's, he's polling in the state of Utah and Joe Biden, so you know, which leads to this next question about these norms. Uh, just this last week in our, in our poll, uh, the Hinckley Institute did, 50% of Utahns said they're voting for President Trump, 38% uh, for Joe Biden. Now, the, what was associated with this, which I think is so interesting, and this gets to the norms of politics, is there's this question out there about whether or not the loser will accept the results of the election. I mean, that's just such an interesting question. I mean, Spencer, is that is that a <laughs> real question? I mean, is this kind of thing where, hey, I'm just not gonna leave the, the Oval Office? I've had this debate with a lot of people and uh, I, I guess I appear rude because I start laughing when they bring this up. Uh, we live, we don't live in a banana republic. We live in a, a, you know, a country of laws. When the presidential candidate gets in, in the, whoever, whoever it may be that's gonna be sworn in, they get in the back of the limousine to leave the White House to go up to uh, the Capitol to be sworn in. They move in, change the locks, um, redo the entire West Wing. And when they get back, uh, the new president is the one that has the keys to the place. Uh, there's no general that's going to be, uh, you know, marching with tanks that are going to, to to say we're not going to we're not going to let President Trump move out. I mean, this is a this is one of the stupidest arguments I've ever heard, and I can't believe anybody's taking any time in the press or in on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or you know talking about it because it just is not going to work that way. So, so to that point, though, I think it's interesting, Emily, because we asked asked Utahns about this issue. What a lot of people would say yeah. that's, that's true, they understand it, but still 62% of Utahns said they are concerned about it. What is kind of hidden in that response then? Well, don't you think it stems from Trump's uh, unwillingness to, to say that he'll accept the results of the election? I think people are really concerned, and honestly, Spencer, I don't know if you can discount people's concerns, um, because not a, not everyone lives in um, in a political bubble, and or maybe like, you know, participates in politics in the way that um, political scientists and politicos know. Right. Um, and so this is just their experience and how they, how they feel and how they feel they might need to protect their families or something like that. No matter how the election goes, I think there's concern on both sides um, about the fallout, so um, I think that's what those numbers stem from. Uh, I'm going to believe that uh, I, I got This is crazy to me. I'm seriously. We I, we are literally <laughs> wasting time now. In the sense that he d once he is no longer commander in chief, he the, the the army. Let's just say. Let's just you know for you know giggles here. Let's just imagine that he says, "I'm not going to leave." All right. So. Every, that means the Army, the Navy, the Marines, every uh, part of the military would have to say, okay, we're gonna go with this guy. In, in spite of anything to the contrary, since the Commander-in-Chief is the President of the United States, not the person who says he is the President of the United States. That's, that's, people would die first before they allowed something like that to happen. That's, 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 that's legit, I'm, I'm not being, this is not hyperbole. People would die because they know that the foundation of America is for peaceful transition, 
and for the commander-in-chief to be the sworn president of the United States. Anybody other than that is discounted. And if Donald Trump, which by the way, I don't think he really is going to do, because as much as he tries to poison the well by saying that, you know, that it's, it's already rigged and I'm, you know, I don't know if I'm going to leave, he knows he's going to leave because he, he's going to have to. And if he isn't, which he will, people would forcibly remove him. And he doesn't want that either. And not to mention, in fact, it would cause such an upheaval around our country that potentially it would be so detrimental that we would all lose in a way that would uh, be lasting for years and years to come. And James, just, and I, it will not happen. I think that this points to the undermining of the traditional media. And I do believe in a strong fourth estate that the media is an important uh, role of our election process. And, and the internet and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok have just served to undermine uh, that that institution of the professional media. And we're hearing and we see a lot of this stuff, not through the professional media sources, but through those other social media forms. And that's, that's it's actually a little bit terrifying. If, I were to, if you were to ask me what's the thing you're most worried about in our country, it's where people are getting their news and not understanding, you know, we've heard this whole thing, fake news. And this, this comes from this whole, you know, reality, television uh, behavior and so I think that's where we're seeing this come from in the people's minds and in public's mind. We've got to talk a little bit more about what's happening with the airways, how people are getting their news, because we're certainly seeing all of that play out in the 4th Congressional District. It's impossible right now to turn on the TV or your radio, wherever you are, without getting these ads. And uh, these are not the positive ads that you know, you might, some might like to see. We'll talk about maybe the, the governor, the lieutenant governor's <laughs> commercial in just a moment. But, uh, but Emily, this is very interesting because um, this, this fourth congressional district, uh, the numbers have changed. Uh, McAdams saw an 11 point increase just in this last month in his unfavorables. And this race is a, is a, a statistical tie now for the fourth congressional race. Uh, how are these negative ads being perceived by Utahns? Well, I think uh, Ben McAdams has, um, for the most part, painted himself as uh, someone who's very moderate, and uh, I think we were describing him as, um, you know, this Boy Scout kind of persona that he has. Um, and so these negative ads maybe were unexpected um, from from his end of end of things, but you know there are negative ads on both sides of this race. So I'm wondering. At some point, do they cancel each other out, or is is that is that what we're seeing in this polling? I don't really know. So uh, let's talk about this district uh, for a, like a math formula, Jason. Okay, so this is how Ben McAdams won. You have to get your your whole party, almost all of your own party, uh, to vote for you. A little segment of the other party, whoever that is, and then a big chunk of those unaffiliated. Uh, what's interesting in this particular race right now is uh, in the last month, uh, it was 11 percent of Utahns were unsure who they're going to vote for. That's only 5% now. And uh, the unfavorables have gone up dramatically for these candidates. Uh, uh, Burgess Owens had a nine-point increase in his unfavorables. Ben McAdams had an 11-point increase in his unfavorables. So uh, that means that uh, they're not really capturing those key groups. How is that playing out in this race when it really does turn out to be historically a math formula? When it's going to be that math formula, if, if I'm Ben McAdams, I'm, I'm pretty worried now because it was always a tough road to hoe being in that district, knowing that it is 
generally speaking, very conservative, and he's trying to run very uh, closer, you know, kind of right center is, is the way I, I would describe it. And I, negative campaigns work. That's the reason why so many uh, campaigns use them when you have these campaign ads that uh, paint a negative picture of your opponent. And so more and more that it is, had taken place, it's very rare that you get you know, the, the high road that the, uh, the gubernatorial election has taken. And so if, if you're McAdams, I think you have more to worry about because everything is very tenuous for you. If you're Burgess Owens, you just hope that uh, the, those unfavorables that Ben McAdams is a little bit higher, that 2%, is, will be enough to carry you on election day. And I think, I mean, if you ask, you brought it up, the, the governor's race versus this race, and, and the big difference is the national attention. So, you know, there's not a, there's not a national organization that steps in in the gubernatorial races and comes in and, and, and bombs the airwaves with, with negative ads. And that's why you saw that relatively pleasant. You know, you had four candidates in the primary that were uh, establishment Utahns that, that were not going after each other in a negative way over the airwaves. Waves. There was a little, but it wasn't wasn't really that heavy-handed. But when you turn to national consultants, they're used to running New York and California-style campaigns, and their playbook says must go negative, must go negative. It's like page three, and so that's why you've seen these races turn very negative. And any time you run negative <laughs> campaign ads as a candidate you get some of that negativity splash back up on you. And I was a little surprised actually to see Ben, Ben's campaign actually do that. Um, you know, the national folks completely expected on both sides, uh, but to see the most recent ads that, that Ben's running and Burgess are running, that they're actually endorsing them, it splashes on them as well. And I do believe this is going to be a tight race. Uh, at the end of the day, my, if I were to give some gut odds, I would give it to Ben McAdams because people would rather, they'll stick with kind of what they know. If there's a question of between the two, they'll stick with what they know, but it comes down to turnout. Like you said, Jason, I mean, can he get, he's gonna get all the Democrats and will they turn out in a big way? And, and I think they will for Ben. Mm -hmm. I just wanna do one more uh, question, Emily, on this, this, these unfavorables, how this plays out. Because when, when people say, and Jason just said it a moment ago, the, the negative campaign kind of works. I wanna talk about what that means, that it works. It's not like these campaigns are driving up favorables, that they like one candidate more. It seems to be a, a question of, how can I make that person just lose more friends than I lose? Right. Well, I don't know. I don't know if people like to see these ads, um, and you know, we'll we'll talk about the the ad that the gubernatorial candidates put out. But you know, again, when I'm when I'm watching TV or watching YouTube or wherever I see these ads, I'll be honest, I skip them. <laughs> so do they do they actually make an impact? Um, Jason seems to think that they do. Uh, I don't I don't know if that's really the information that people are looking for when they make their decision. Okay. In the middle of all the negatives, let's just talk for a second, Jason uh, Lee. Uh, so we did have this the, a few commercial spots. Uh, Spencer Cox, Chris Peterson, and, a, and what was really unique, both of them on camera at the same time calling for civility and politics and to our last question too saying they would accept the results of the election whatever they are did that does that play well is this just a little bright light in the storm or is this, is this something would even happen if that race was close I would well I'm going to say that it's a bright light because what you said at the end I do think it would be a, a, a the tenor would be a little different I don't know that it would be hugely different but it would be kind of they'd have to at least consider not being so nice to each other maybe be seen in the same uh 
uh, commercial spot. But I will tell you that I put this out on my social media. I was able to kind of uh, talk to uh, electronically to uh, one of the candidates, and I told him how proud I was of him being able to do that. I've had him on our podcast before. And I, I thought that that's, that's how gentlemen behave. That's the kind of campaigns we should all have, honestly. My mom, uh, who lives in Illinois, I'm from Chicago, she, and we know dirty politics, all right? I'm, <laughs> believe me. So to see these men stand together and say, let's have a civil discourse, and you vote for the person you find most amenable to your, uh, your policy views, that, it, it played well with her. It played well with a, a number of people across the country. The BBC reported it. Is it to say that that's going to happen more and more? Probably not, because when I say that negative campaigns work, it's because on big national campaigns, that's the way people, more often than not, they, they try to, they always call it the lesser of two evils. And so they pick the person who they feel is a little less, you know, undesirable than the other guy, which is sad to say that, but that's, that's the way the voters seem to think uh, so often. And unfortunately, we've kind of gone that way rather than use the example set by uh, Chris Peterson and Spencer Cox, who say, you vote for the candidate you think is best, not the one you think is the least worst. This has been going on, though. Our, our pleasantness has been going on. 1996, Frank Souter, who was the chair of the Republican Party, and Mike Zuhl, chair of the Democratic Party, came to this studio and cut ads similar. Uh, get out and vote. We can agree on these things. Mm -hmm. Well, I will say, you know, like you mentioned, Jason, uh, this ad did get international attention, national attention, and I think a lot of people really appreciate the sentiment, but I've also seen people, um, you know, kind of direct a little bit of criticism at Spencer Cox for this ad, um, kind of suggesting that it's the bare minimum because, you know, in the primary, Spencer Cox uh, said he would support President Trump, who's been the source of a lot of division in this country. And just last week, he endorsed Burgess Owens, who um, we saw this week went on the attack with Mitt Romney uh, in kind of a strange turn of events. So, you know, this is a, a nice sentiment. It's the Utah way, as we might call it. But at the same time, I think for some people, it might ring a little bit hollow. Mm -hmm. So, Spencer, uh, sometimes people worry that when you have a lot of negativity, with a couple of bright spots in there, but you have a lot of ne negativity, it's going to impact turnout. It's going to turn people off of politics and maybe elections, and they might just be so upset they don't participate at all. But that doesn't seem to be the case in this election. In fact, uh, as of yesterday in Utah, 310,000 ballots already turned in. We're approaching a third of what we had in 2016, about 50 million nationwide. I think nationwide the numbers account because it's most states are doing all by mail balloting and it's the first time that's happened uh, really across the country. We're used to it here, um, but it is, yeah, there, there's a lot more attention being paid to this election. You've got some uh, open seats, you've got an open governor's seat, you've got the fourth district, which is hot, you've got the first district, which is an open seat. So there's plenty of places for people to send in their ballots. And and I believe that people have their minds made up, and that's why you've seen them come in early. Um, I know that, that uh, you know, it does, by mail balloting does increase the percentage of turnout, but it's not, it's not astronomical. You'd think that every single person would send in their ballot when they get it, but most people get the ballot, and if they're not going to send it in, it's because they don't know enough. Um, we talked about this a little bit on your show the other day, um, where 
you get down to the school board race and you become, you, you let it sit there and, and languish, you know, oh, what am I going to do on this? Or the, and then they just miss the deadline and don't send it in. So I think you'll see turnout up in Utah some, but I don't think it will be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. One of the things I that's going a to impact. A, little, uh, a couple of days ago regarding turnout, and I heard from uh, Justin Lee, who's the state election director, as well as uh, the uh, deputy chief uh, clerk for Salt Lake County, turnout is already up. They're up to 16%, 15%, and that was two days ago, and they're getting over 80,000 uh, ballots a day. So I don't know how what the percentage is, but from at least from what I've understood, there is a higher turnout. I would suggest that much of it has to do with the presidential election and then the other uh, races become residual but, uh, and, and, and gain from that. But it is, people are more excited to vote in this election than maybe uh, some in a few years anyway. One of the key issues, we heard about it in the presidential debate, we've heard about it in all of our debates for all of these offices here is the impact of COVID-19 on our state. And uh, one of these, these key issues is, is the fact that our numbers just keep rising in the state, a record number this week. Uh, our own epidemiologist said just, just yesterday, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm really not trying to scare anyone. I'm just trying to inform you. Uh, Spencer, how is this playing out in the governor's race and maybe some of these other races surrounding it? Well, I, I've said before, I don't view wearing a mask as a big, a big problem. And, and people need to wear them whenever they're in public in a, in, or can't social distance, and especially indoors. I mean, I, I don't, I view it as being polite. Um, you know, I, I uh, it's, it's not a constitutional issue with me, it's a politeness issue with me. Uh-huh. And if you're not willing to be polite indoors, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to tell anybody. She's she's at her wits end. Yeah. So so for, we have like 20 seconds, Spencer. Why is there an issue on the constitutional emergency power still occurring with our governor and legislature? This is a struggle between. I actually saw an interaction between the governor and the legislature earlier this week uh, over this particular topic, and I think it's a who has the power to be able to do this. And I think the legislature believes that the the power to do this resides in them and the executive branch. As, is, as has been done through the, the presidency, they hate that executive powers are used. Okay, thank you for that. That's gonna have to be the last comment. Thank you so much for your great analysis on these important issues. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of the Hinkley Report. If you like listening to the experts talking about the issues, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app.